Welcome to On the Issues. My guest today is Rodwan Ziyada, founder and director of the Damascus Center for Human Rights Studies, co-founder and executive director of the Syrian Center for Political and Strategic Studies, and Syrian Middle East Fellow at the Arab Center, Washington. You can find his full bio on the page for this episode. Uh, I know your position on the Kurdish problem in Syria, and I have personally been been looking very carefully at the entire Kurdish situation, not just in Syria, in Iraq, in Turkey, in Iran. And of course, we go back to the 1920s, and, and the Kurdistan was dismantled, uh, which I think is tragic. And I don't know if you agree or disagree, but I think it was tragic because it's not going to go away. This is not something, you know, we have nationalities of this nature. Only nation without state. Yeah, you know, they were, they were, what time we were entertaining the idea, the, 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 one, the one nation plus state solution, remember that? Uh, that is, open borders between the four countries, allow the Kurdistan in reality to be reestablished without having a, a state per se. Yes. And they can go around and trade with one another and work with one another. But the prerequisite there was that the four countries involved are at peace with one another. <laughs> Iran, Iraq, and Syria, and Turkey. And Turkey. But look what happened today, which is really an interesting phenomenon. The conflict in Syria, the tragic civil war in Syria, created uh, more or less a sort of an alliance. Look what's happening. You have Iran in Syria. You have Iran in Iraq. The relationship is very close. And then you have, uh, of course, Iran in, in, in Lebanon, which is, let's take it out of the equation, then you have Turkey as well. That is a relationship between, of course, Turkey does not see eye to eye with Assad, and he may survive. And if he survives politically, then the circle is again, that link is missing. Had he not, if he doesn't survive, you can create that kind of actually better understanding before the four countries. But that still does not solve the problem because it's, in a way, it's a little late. With the, with the current situation. But the, the, just like the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the Palestinians are not going to go anywhere. And Israelis have you know, private dreams of all kinds. Reality, they have to accept in one form or another. So do these countries. They must accept there is, there is a Kurdish nationalism. There is a Kurdish community that are not going to die, that are not going to surrender. They are not going to give up what they price so dearly, and that's their cultural heritage, their language. And there is nothing wrong with, with ha wanting that and having that, trying to experience it. So, so where do you see? Where do you see the um, future of this with the Syrian Kurds? Erdogan is fighting it. He's right now fighting. I think his main purpose there is to stop, stop them from consolidating their autonomy there. Uh, yes, uh, you pointed rightly that the Kurdish issue is a regional issue. Yeah. It's not a Syrian issue, not Iraqi. And the Kurds historically actually one of the victims of the Sykes-Picot agreements. 
that's who left actually uh, a nation without state and they divided into four different states and the majority of the Kurds are in Turkey and in Iran uh, in Iraq then Iran and Syria I don't actually to get into the polls or numbers because that's controversial all the time but since the last census we have in Syria in 1954 the Kurds approximately 7-8% they don't have like the number like in, in, in Iraq the third of the population or 20% in, 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 in Turkey yeah. this is why we always we have uh, to deal with the reality and the majority of the Kurds in Syria are not in the in the in the northern part of Syria they are actually in Damascus and in Aleppo who's been actually uh, part of the Sunni population there most of of the grand muftis are Kurds even Kiftar was a Kurd and we have seven prime ministers in the Syrian history who are Kurds um, and we have at least two president too the issue of the Kurds in Syria started exactly uh, uh, in, 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 the, in the 60s yes, yes after what they call the census which mm-hmm. basically uh, as a reflections of the rise of the Arab nationalism mm-hmm. let's say the extremist Arabs yeah. who actually uh, they don't have the bullerism or the uh, 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 they need they see Syria as a pure Arab identity exactly was never been the case because we have 17 different ethnic groups we yeah. have Armenian we have Cherkes we have Chichan we have and all should this is why now the Kurdish issue right now it's reflections of the failure of the, the modern Syrian state yeah. that a, a state never was able to achieve a citizenship to all citizens never be inclusive to all ethnic and minority groups and this is why suddenly everything now rose up uh, the Sunni Alawite, the sectarian issue, uh, the Kurdish issue and it's the relationship with our neighbors and in all of, all of that uh, n- now, I'm very supportive of of, uh, of of the Kurds in Syria. Even my my first book about the Kurds in Syria uh, was among the first scholars who argue that the Kurds should be recognized in the constitution and even change the name of the state because before the 1950s, Syria was called the Syrian Republic. There is no Arab. Yeah. And this is one of the contentious issues now between the Kurds and the Arab in, in the negotiations. Yeah. Uh, and most of, unfortunately, the, the Syrian Arab opposition rejected the idea to change the name. But it was a Syrian Republic before. And also we should consider and have full about their political right, their cultural right, consider there actually the first of March was my birthday will be the national festival because they're Nairuz they're Nairuz holiday and until and always I have actually a sad stories because I have my many uh, Kurdish friends one of them who's actually one of the leader of the human rights association and 
his name Radif Mustawa, and he told me a story always carried out with me. He has his wedding, and you know when he has wedding, it's maybe this is the best day in your life. But he spent the best day in his life in prison because one of the guests actually sing a song in Kurdish language. Oh boy, yeah. And how is actually <clears throat> bad to punish people, punish people in a wedding, in their local wedding, just because one of the guests sing a Kurdish uh, song. This is, this is give you how, how much level of discrimination that oh, when yeah. the Ba'ath party came into power discriminate against the Kurds basically because he has carry on the, 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 the Arab nationalism flag. Yeah. And now after the, the, the uh, uh, 2011, the Syrian revolution or call it Syrian uprising, the, the Kurdish issue raised again. And, and those, the, now the Kurds are divided into two groups. One group called the Syrian uh, Kurdish National Council, who's actually make allies with the Syrian opposition and supportive of the Syrian revolution. And the other group who's close to the Assad government, yeah. the BYD. Mm -hmm. The BYD, it's basically, they have roots as a part of the BKK who fought in, 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 in Turkey. And after the Turkey take positions against the Assad government, the Assad government thought it's a good idea to play this card again. And they called Salih Muslim and released some of the top leaders of the BYD from prison. And they gave them actually in 2012 uh, the governance of Qamishli. And later on, the Assad government put priority to fight against the Free Syrian Army and the Syrian opposition. And this is, it was an opportunity for the BYD to seize the opportunities and control three different areas. Afrin, one of the areas, and Kobani, and Qamishli. And they call that uh, West Kurdistan. And they crush all the offices, and actually they crush all the leaders of the Kurdish National Council. This is on the Syria level. On the regional level, the Kurds divided into two voices. We have the voice of Mas'ud Kurdistani, mm -hmm. who's the most, Mas'ud Barazani, Barazani in Kurdistan, Iraq, who's the most moderate. And we have Abdullah Ojalan. Yeah. And this is why we always say we have between Erbil and Qandil. Yeah. Erbil, Erbil in Iraq, who is actually, yeah. Yeah. and Qandil in Turkey. Yeah. Yeah. And this is why uh, uh, the, the, the Kurdish on the national level been divided into uh, th these two. And that's reflect on the Kurds in Syria. You have the Syrian Kurdish National Council, it's more aligned with the Mas'ud Barazani, who lost actually because they never been empowered or have any military support. And then we have the BYD, who aligned with Abdullah Ojalan and consider Ojalan as a mortal leader. The BYD was more opportunist and uh, more, let's say, uh, smart. They seized the opportunity after the rise of ISIS to align with the Russia first, then with the United States to fight against uh, ISIS. Mm -hmm. And those was because they have the experience in Turkey. And most of the leaders are Kurdish-Turkish. None of them are Syrians because most of the leaders of the Syrian 
Kurdish National Council left into Erbil. Mm-hmm. They are stick to the United States, and the United States they need actually a partner or ally or local partner under the Obama administration to fight against ISIS only. The Free Syrian Army refused to fight against ISIS until actually uh, 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 has promised from the United States to fight against the Assad government. And this is the primary goal of the establishment of the FSA, the Free Syrian Army. Mm-hmm. But the Free Syrian Army actually refused the deal and found the, the BYD, who's changed their name to uh, YPG, YPG yeah. and then they changed their name to the SDF. Syrian Democratic Forces. Mm-hmm. And there is interesting hearing uh, at the Capitol Hill um, in 2016 about that. When at, at that time, uh, Senator Lindsey Graham asked actually the uh, uh, Secretary uh, of Defense, uh, who asked her at that time, asked her that's the BYD or uh, basically they are the BKK. He acknowledged that. And the BKK is in our list on the terrorist organization. He acknowledged that. But then he added that this is why we advise them to change their name into SDF. And everyone uh, uh, knows that. In, 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 in summary, the, the sad thing that the Kurdish... Turkish problem exported into Syria. In Syria, we have enough pro- enough problems to add one more. This is why the, the fight in, in, in Afrin right now, basically between Kurdish-Turkish troops and between the Turkish uh, troops, which aligned with the, some groups of the, the FSA. And it, this is a sad story again, because Syria has enough, and we don't know exactly what's the future of Syria will be look like to add one more problems yeah. on the Syrian uh, on the Syrian territories. So what what has happened actually, in, as I see it, in Erdogan, knowing his ambition, took advantage of the situation. And now with this current incursion into Syria, of course he's making the claim that the YPG is part of the and partial of the PKK. So instead of actually trying to solve the problem in Turkey to begin with, because he still does not recognize that this is not going to go away, that, and resume the negotiation with the PKK as, as it when it started about two, four years ago, and it stopped it two and a half years ago, where this is going to go to. And then by going back to, to, the, to the Kurds in Syria, as a result of that, basically the Kurds galvanized or became more of a united entity. Am I right? Regardless of the... Still, but they have very small percentage of minority in, and their their territories are disconnected. It's di- disconnected, yeah. The only way for them actually to connect it, to control the city of Azaz, which on the Turkish of Syrian borders. This is a large Arab city, which almost 80,000 population. When tried, actually, the BYD to get into Azaz in 2016, the Turkish troops decided to get in. And that's actually break the dream of linking all the three territories of the Kurdish uh, uh, BYD in Syria. Now we back into the same questions. 
how we can solve the Kurdish Kurdish uh, uh, issue or Kurdish question in Syria. We propose that in something called Syrian uh, Transition Roadmap to have a full democratic Syria uh, with the BR system. The problem that, in, as I said, in the, the Kurds in their territories are the minority. I mean, if, they talk, if they, you take Qamishli as one discrete and you have any kind of election, they will lose because the majority you have a Syrian Mm-hmm. A Syrian yeah. and the Christian are majority. Yeah. And we have great friends from there. I think you remember a Professor, uh, what, what, what's his name? Elias Sema. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, and this is why they cannot claim that their territories. What we suggested in, 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 in Syria Transition Roadmap, that we divided Syria into 36 different small districts mm-hmm. with the, and we apply in the BR election system and this is why you get Afrin as one district and you got actually Qamishli uh, uh, into three different districts that allow the Kurds to be representative in the Syrian parliament in the future which should be consist of 300 uh, members. Uh, and that's a proposal. We got a support from many, uh, from the United Nations and from m- many, many groups. But unfortunately, there is no political process to talk politics right now in Syria. No, with whom? No, with whom? The question is today, today is that given the war and its consequences up to this point, what is the prospect of that? Turkey is not interested in, in allowing this to happen. That is a, the plan that Yasser just suggested. Iran is certainly not interested either. And uh, the Russian, I don't think they care one way or the other. Russian wants to maintain their position in Syria, um, almost at all costs, just like Iran. So when you talk about democracy dividing the country into you know, 36 different provinces, whatever, uh, the, the the prospect of actually, even if this hostility ceases, ceases completely, and let's say ISIS, of course, will be defi- defeated, finally, ultimately. I mean, it's already on the verge of complete defeat. Um, to what extent is going to be possible to actually restore any semblance? First of all, there was no democracy in Syria to begin with, from inception. No, we have actually democratic tradition and 90, until 1958, yeah, when Jamal Abdel Nasser. It's true was was very, uh, I'm just finishing writing a book about, it's called Syrian Democratic Past by great political scientists in the University of Michigan. And he, he, the tradition at that time, in, from 1950 until 1954, we have uh, Faris al-Khouri as a prime minister. And Faris al-Khouri was a Protestant. Yeah, and yeah, the I mean, Protestant is the minority of the Christian in Syria. That means he's a minority of the minorities. Even that he's became prime minister, then he's became speaker of the house. Uh, and at that time, he got much of the support from Mustafa Sibai. Mustafa Sibai, who's actually the leader of the Muslim Brotherhood uh, in Syria at that time. I'm seeing... It was some kind of tradition. Unfortunately, the co- the emerge of the Cold War 
and the rise of the communist parties and the rise of the socialism and the nationalism uh, swept away all that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, look, the initially you might have said if these issues did not occur, uh, there's no question, Assyria was more tolerant of the 15, 16 different kind of nationalities. And there was no conflict within Syria itself. But then what happened after that, you know, with the rise of communism and all of that? But now the situation is even worse because what happened in the last six years pretty much dismantled the Syria Syrian identity. As, as, as an identity, it was dismantled. The question is, can you actually put it back together? That's where I have, I have concern. Because now, the distrust between various ethnic groups is so intense. Will the Sunni agree finally to come back? And, and if there's going to be an election, they will win. You know, national election will win. But nobody is going to allow that to happen. So, so what you have now, you have to create a system. What you've been suggesting before would have been, again, great then. It's no longer, in my view, applicable to today's Syria. I agree, but also I have just uh, to say I have problems with the with the word with the terminology Sunni in Syria, because the Sunni in Syria who actually seventy seventy four percent the majority never been as one block. No, no. The most free and fair elections in the Syrian history in nineteen fifty four. The Sunni divided into more into tribes. Mm -hmm. Then you have the secularist, and you have the Muslim Brotherhood that got only eight seats in the parliament. Then they are. We are not talking about uh, religiously uh, uh, divided Syria. Now the issue, of course, with the Alawites, who is actually the Assad family or the Assad dynasty or call it whatever, control the voice of the Alawites and tried actually to eliminate any dissidents within the Alawite yeah. community, like Salah Hijdid yeah, yeah. or yeah. Al-Khayyir or any yeah. credible voices. Yeah. They can express their uh, discontent with, the, with what's going on right in Syria. Then uh, how to find uh, what we propose in the Syria transition roadmap to go back into parliamentarian system. We have to weaken the presidential position, and like the system in Italy, Israel, where actually the president has only ceremonial ceremonial duties, duties, and where the prime minister who got actually the majority in the parliament, with the same time put to priority as decentralization. But the issue that in Syria, we don't have any nat natural resources uh, like in Iraq to build on. Uh, and this is why most probably depends on having smart leaders to restructure the country from scratch. Like many nations now, they don't rely on their natural resources because you have the human resources at the best capital resources you can rely on. And, and I believe in the Syrians, because the Syrians are hard workers. Uh, well, they are very inventive, very creative, and there's no question. Exactly. I mean, historically, Syria was a, a center of Arab uh, you know, 
The yes. only problems that after 40 years now we have outdated education system. You yeah. have to rebuild the education system. <clears throat> but the Syrians, not only hard workers, they are actually eager to learn new things. And we saw that in the refugee camps or the Syrian refugees or the migrants, everywhere they go. But still the question of the identity, which you pointed out correctly, Syrians now lost the identity or the ability uh, to believe in themselves after what's happened. Right. The tragedy is that we, we hear every day is not, it's not a question of, of numbers, those lives. The last report published by the World Bank, which called the cost of war, talked about 87% they are actually into uh, extreme poverty. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, outside, outside Damascus, pretty much. Exactly. Yeah. And the mistrust uh, uh, between the ethnic groups, between the Kurds and the Arabs, Alawite, Sunni, and the role and the Christians, and in and it has gone much, much deeper. And much, this is my point. When he said the Sunnis actually is not monolithic in the sense of the that has changed. What happened is that as a result of the civil war, people will begin to look at their identity, notwithstanding differences between the various groups within the Sunnis, but they are Sunnis, notwithstanding the, 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 the Kurds been divided into two. Now they see more eye to eye than ever before. So do the Sunnis. Because the war, having deepened the division, when people start to gravitate to what their own groupings, albeit they have still some differences, political or otherwise. This is what has changed, in, in my view, in Syria. And that is why it's going to be very difficult to piece it What's happened because the Sunni in Syria always they believe they are the majority. They don't believe actually they need uh, to come together as a one bloc. Exactly. In, in the last even eight years uh, uh, after the Syrian uprising, we found actually some extremist uh, uh, Arabs voices who they need actually to eliminate the Alawites or other groups. But those very quickly uh, has been sidelined by the mainstream within the Syrian opposition. Yeah. And this is why I'm sure that any kind of, of uh, let's say, uh, sectarian democracy like in Iraq or in Lebanon or in Bosnia-Herzegovina, Northern Ireland, will not work in Syria. And this is my problems with the Geneva communique that everyone talk about it as as the raw model of the solution. But it's not even working in Iraq. I mean, let's face it. Exactly. I mean, uh, they talk about Iraq as a democracy. I think it's baloney, I'm exactly. sorry to say. Exactly. It's a, you know, if this was the case and Maliki has handled it himself... Can, it uh, can bring peace, uh, but actually will, you will stuck in your internal politics and you will not be able to move on. But it did not even bring peace to Iraq. I mean, you have to remember, ever since, you know, Maliki going back, the, the killing between the two sides never stopped. To this day, it never really stopped. This is why the they conception got, of the concessional democracy... Uh, it never flawed. worked in the Middle East. Exactly, that, and won't work. And won't work. That's why, that's why you know, going back to your point, what was possible 30, 40 years ago is no longer possible today. 
But what's happened in in uh, yes, I, I I agree. The social contract changed. Has that changed? Now, how do where do we go from here? <clears throat> that's that's you know my my concern today is I I want to look to the future. What sort of future can we have envisioned that is really a practical practical approach to the Syrian tragic situation today? Practically speaking, as you so you know eloquently you know drew the picture of what's been going on in Syria, and uh, the the fundamental division within the the Syrian community. Though I was going back many years, was not discernible. Was Syria? Was Syria? People see themselves as Syrian. They did not see themselves Sunni, Shiite, Alawite, Kurds, or otherwise. Now they see themselves as such because the, the sense of national of identity has assumed now a prime uh, consideration, prime role. So where do we go from here? Given now this deepen the division has been created on an ethnic basis. How do we overcome? Let's say ISIS will be defeated, and then what? ISIS already now been defeated. Uh, they have still some of uh, is a pockets here, pockets there? here yeah. and there, and there is. How your... do you create this national consensus about any kind of solution that is sustainable? That's really I personally have been struggling with this and advising. Okay, transitional period. You need definitely transitional period. You need some kind of representative government, not necessarily an election. I think going into an election, it's a dead end. It will produce no stability, no real government. It's too premature to go for a national election in order to create so-called democratic government. It's yes. a, it's a, it's of a course, I'm, I'm not under the impression that we'll have Jeffersonian democracy next day in Syria after the No, no, I know you didn't say that. Government. I know you didn't but say that. But my, my proposal that the ABC of the conflict resolution is being on in the Middle East, that's uh, power sharing. Let's bring two different, and this is... We teach everyone in the conflict resolution yeah. about that. But you also need... You this need, is will not work in Syria. That's exactly right. But well, not only in Syria. Come, you know, power sharing as part of conflict resolution is fundamental. There's no question about it. But then you have now the psychological hang-up in terms of... You know, even though in practical sense it would work, how do you bring them emotionally, psychologically, to the negotiating table and say... Yeah, now we can restore or we can create uh, conditions where we all can live uh, Exactly. Know, I, I think the point of star that's, that the asset has the political responsibility of what's happened to Syria. I do remember when uh, uh, in, in, in South Africa, when uh, uh, the, the leader of South Africa... Uh, you mean Mandela? Mandela, when yeah. Mandela died actually in the 90s, the headlines of, of, of uh, the New York Times at that time was uh, the man, did not say that the man who actually get the Nobel Peace Prize or the uh, president of the South Africa for eight years, no, it says the man who actually pulled his country from the edge of the civil war. Because when Mandela get uh, a deal to get out of prison from 1990 until 1994, these four years was the worst year of civil war among the blacks themselves. 
and then Mandela he decided to take the risk and to go with the election despite of all of all the critics among the blacks and his wife uh, uh, herself. In Syria we have the opposite. We, we Bashar Assad himself who actually drags Syria into the civil war. Well, of course. Of course. And this is why we have to start from this point as a responsibility then we are unable to talk about any transitional period in Syria if Assad still in power. Exactly what you need. But you... then what we need, what we need some rational voices within the Alawite community to speak frankly about what's next and what's the future, to have frank conversation that this type of governance will no longer valid in Syria. We have to accept the reality that Syria has changed forever. It's changed, but what you are suggesting, and I think that would ideally, and I emphasize the word ideally here, would be the great thing to have, to do. Is that possible under the current circumstances, political and security, military circumstances? That's the problem that we have. So, sure, if you have a Mandela, a Syrian Mandela, peace and reconciliation, revenge retribution don't work, we have now to look for the future. What's the point in killing each other? It's not gonna, it will not change fundamentally the picture itself within Syria, but it has changed the, the emotional dynamics. It has, it has instilled total distrust, complete distrust. You know, you're talking, yes, the Alawite can play a role, but the truth of the matter is, who trusts the Alawite today in Syria, other than the Alawite themselves? There is still some, some, some voices among the Alawite who actually distance themselves uh, from the Assad government. I know those even became minorities within the minority, yeah, yeah. and very difficult to say with this, uh, where actually... Uh, uh, the voice of, of the poets rather than the voice of the rational and the debate. Uh, and that's itself, it's a problem in, 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 in Syria right now. This is why I think what we need now, understand that uh, after the post-asset, it should be Syria for all. It should be an opportunity for all Syrians to express themselves. What's the practical issue? It, it has to be understanding from international powers. Because if we back to the, to the beginning of our conversation, the civil war in Syria is no longer its internal civil war. It's not like the Congo or, uh, no, no, or no, Rwanda. No. It has three different layers. You have the international layers with superpower, the United States and Russia, and Russia sees the Syria to return now into the uh, to the upfront of the international uh, uh, relation, and we have regional layer of the conflict between Iran from one hand and the Saudis and Turkey, mm -hmm. and then we have the the internal the local yeah the lo the, the local yeah. the local layer, and that's if this three different layers did not go well together. 
We, we we saw that during the negotiations. This is very true, and it's very very true. That is, however, where the of course the problem itself. That is, how do you reconcile between the three? So when you establish certain prerequisites, one of the main prerequisites is removal. Bashar Assad cannot be part of the equation. Well, that's in and of itself a major problem. If if the when the feet of ISIS is basically and with the support of Russia and Iran, Assad has become now another reckoned, I mean, entity to be reckoned with. He, who's going to remove him? He'll be removed only if Assad and Iran abandon him. And that's not going to happen any time in the future. Before they consolidate their position in, in Syria, they will not abandon Assad, because he's going to be the conduit for them. You know? Exactly. So that's, that's, you have that problem. Then you have to, Turkey. Turkey's ambition is to have a foothold in Syria. I don't think Turkey is just going going there to have a fight with the you know YPG to try to, to defeat. That's not going to happen. Turkey cannot defeat the PKK, not because the PKK is overwhelming power, because of the nature of the insurgency. You cannot kill every terrorist. It just won't happen. But Turkey's ambition in Syria is, has to be very carefully factored into the equation. That is very important, exactly what you mentioned, this, the, the, the <clears throat> regional layer. The international layer, when you have Russia, Russia is going to be part and parcel, no matter under any circumstances. They've already been there for 50 years now with their naval base, so they're not going to ab abandon any of this. And then you have the Saudis, Whose fight with Iran, so you have a proxy ongoing or, or between Saudi Arabia and Iran, both in Iraq as well as Syria. And now you have, you go back to the lower, the, the, the domestic layer, where we already spoke about that, the discrepancies and differences are so enormous. So now I look at the three layers and ask myself, okay, how do we reconcile it? This is extraordinary, extraordinary complex. It's a puzzle of 10,000 pieces, and it's scattered all over. <laughs> and you are asked, let's put it together. I don't, I'm, I'm not that pessimistic to a point and say it's No, doomed. this is the reality. It's a doomed. It's not doomed. It's still not doomed. Why? Because in the final analysis, people want to live. Right. People want to, be, to live in peace. People want to grow and raise their kids in peace. People want to see their kids go to school. Then human nature eventually will prevail. But when? How much more losses? How much more Syria can lose without actually uh, become totally and completely Palestine? It's already Palestine. Yes, and I totally agree. And this is actually the picture we live in in Syria yeah, every yeah. day. We need to, uh, uh, but. Yesterday or two days ago, uh, Russia hosted a conference called Suchi. Of course, ended miserably as a mm -hmm. circus. Mm -hmm. But look about the Assad intention. He sent all members of his parliament and other members of of the Shabiha and other groups, and they sent it's a one thousand six hundred people there chanting "Viva Assad, Viva yeah, Russia." Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's supposed actually uh, okay. to think in rational senses as we speak yeah. to each other right yeah. now. Yeah. 
what the future of Syria will be. To repeat after eight years that is that as something is nothing happened in the past and we need to go back to before 2011 will not solve the problems. Syria still have seven million refugees outside. Exactly. And none of them actually they will return in Syria. I born in a city called Daria, seven kilometers of Damascus. The population of my hometown, Daria, it's three hundred thousand before the uprising. Now, do you know how much left in the city? Zero. Zero. The Assad government, 40,000 peril palms. Even the Secretary General in one of his uh, uh, actually briefing at the Security Council called Daria as the capital of peril palms. The Assad government... It's wiped out. It's wiped out completely. Yeah. And this is the people, what kind of connection or what kind of, let's say, emotion, if, if anyone asks them, let's return to the same type of governance that under Bashar Assad. Okay, we fought and we lost half a million of people to return into the same type of governance. And this is what that the Syria revolution is not about sectarian issue, is not about actually any international issues. It's basically and mainly political issues, a type of governance that should govern Syria. Yeah, but again, you know, like we said, however, earlier, that if it were left up to the Syrian people, I would be far more optimistic. This is why what we need from the three different layers. The United States to engage more right now in the in the Syrian issue. Secretary of State Tillerson uh, made an excellent speech at Stanford University last week. He outlined the U.S. strategy in Syria. It's excellent words, but how how about implication? I, don't I doubt. Ex- I seriously don't expect anything would come out. And of that. it's clear that yeah. he has he hasn't got the White House support. This is why President Trump never mentioned Syria, actually, in his State of the Union. Uh, this is why I doubted that the United States will engage fully to put limits to the Russian hegemony into Syria. The other thing is you need to, to deal with the Iran. And there, there is no relationship with Iran. And then there is a very strained relationship with Turkey. So the three players right now, the United States has no good relationship to talk with. This is this is your this is our problem. This is the problem we have. So I know. Well, yeah. Again, I look at these, all of these components. I absolutely agree with you. Had the United States intervened earlier, had the United States actually took, you know, but the United States today to rec- to to be effectively involved and produce real result is going to have to accept the fact that it must talk to Iran, it must talk to to Russia, and it must talk to Turkey as well. These dialogues are not happening. So Tillerson can give all the speeches he wants in the world. But I would, if I were there, I would ask him, are you prepared to talk to the Irans? Are you prepared to talk to, to, to Russia to try to find that kind of solution? I don't think that's in the card yet. Do you agree? I totally agree. But that the, the, the United States now taking positions actually against Iran. They need actually to cut the long arms of Iran, not only in Lebanon, but also in Syria. And of course, and how you will do that. When's that going to happen? That's going to happen. I mean, short of war, can you actually sit down and persuade Iran 
to leave Syria? This is why what I, I predict that the civil war will continue in Syria. The Russians, even they have the upper hand now over United States in Syria, and that the side, uh, the sad side of the story, and and if 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 they be able actually to crush the opposition from the north, uh, from Idlib, the, then the Assad government will control the majority of the territories in Syria. But he has no resources whatsoever. Yeah. He has no trust and he has no ability for anyone actually to fund. That's the problem. I mean, right now, two-thirds of Syria basically lives in Rome. People estimate that's going to take, uh, to start with, $100 billion if you really want to begin serious reconstruction. The World Bank, they need actually 200. 200. 35 billion dollars. Yeah, I'm saying to start, to start, you're going to need some kind of commitment. I would like to see a commitment of 10, 20 billion dollars. And who will be that? Where is going to get that money from? You know, I would like to um, chat with you without necessarily recording it <laughs> and, and really see if we could come up with a, a formula. Again, I base that only the humanitarian dimension. That is, I never lose hope. We should never lose hope because, lose as you hope. said, there is yeah. still people there. Yeah. I still have family there. Yeah. And those actually refuse to leave Syria because they still believe That's right. in their home yeah. country. Yeah. And I still actually have my wife uh, has, has her dream to return to Syria, yeah. to see her mother, to yeah. see her sisters yeah. there. Yeah. And Syria actually witnessed that in the past, in the old history. I hope this dark days will over, but what I um, fear that we need more rational leaders uh, yeah. to be able to take the right decision in the right time. Right. right. Uh, if the Assad continue to believe that he can uh, govern Syria as in those 40 years, it, it's over. But until he reached this point, yeah, you know, you know, in, in conflict resolution, as you well know, uh, there's the other, uh, it could happen. That is, uh, all of them can reach a point of exhaustion. But sometimes a conflict ends because you no longer can gain anything by continuing. But with the Russian intervention, they tip the balance. Yeah, no, no question. But even then, even then, again, as a possibility, I'm not suggesting this necessarily going to, because it's, they have not, Assad has not reached that point. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> that point of exhaustion say, I can no longer, you see what he's done, what the Russian and the Iranian have done, prolong his longevity right there. So now he's hopeful he can restore his power, he wants to run for election, and he, he will be elected, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> so you have that, that element there that's still in play. Um, the point of no return is not there yet. And I agree with you, this, this, this is the recipe now for the continuation of the conflict for a while, because we have not reached that point, nor have we reached political consensus uh, from within, and certainly no political agreement from without the country. And that is in the saddest, saddest uh, story. And I just hope, I hope we can find uh, some kind of solution sometime soon, for the sake of the Syrian people, for the sake of the children. 
I, I, I weep. I weep when I think about that. I, I, and I'm not kidding. I wrote a piece about that's just the, what's happening to the kids, to the Syrian kids alone. Um, it, it breaks the heart. I, 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 uh, I just, just every time I think about it, I, I lose it. To be, to be honest with you, I just lose it. But you know, we, we have to, we must never stop. Exactly. And uh, we have a lost generation yeah, yeah. who's been actually, they don't have any education in the last five, six years. Yeah. Well, you know, thank you so much. No, thank you very much. It was actually a very thoughtful conversation. Yeah, thank you. And it come up, we even, uh, you have to think in different ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode on the issues. You can find this podcast on my SoundCloud page and stay tuned to my social media accounts for the latest analysis and announcements.